Homeless Link is the national membership charity for frontline homelessness services. We work to improve services through research, guidance and learning, and campaign for policy change that will ensure everyone has a place to call home and the support they need to keep it. In this series of the Going Beyond podcast, we will discuss the effects of working in the homelessness sector on individual well-being, looking at managing stress, burnout, the effects of vicarious trauma, and the importance of debriefing and reflective practice. In each episode, we will speak to a guest who will tell us about their expertise, provide practical tips for improving well-being, and discuss the realities of working in the sector. I'm Jo Turner, National Practice Development Project Manager at Homeless Link, and I'll be your host. We hope you enjoy it. For the final episode of the second series of the Going Beyond podcast, we are joined by individuals from the National Practice Development Team at Homeless Link. Welcome, Alex, Viv, Lauren and Vicky. Hi. Hi. Hello. In this series, we have spoken to guests about the effects of working in the homelessness sector on individual well-being. So we've spoken about burnout, managing stress, the effects of vicarious trauma and the importance of debriefing and reflective practice. So I thought for the final episode, we should use this time for reflection to look at some of the key messages across the series and talk about anything which stood out for us. So the first thing I want to discuss is how the opportunities for experiencing ourselves as failing is huge in frontline work. So in episode one, Nick Maguire talks about how we can come to work with a set of ideas of how to support and wanting to make a difference. And often we can't achieve these. And as a result, we class ourselves as failures and we become incredibly self-critical. So there's a quote from episode one I found really interesting, uh, which was, failure is part of a journey. It's a function of time on the journey to some sort of success. So Alex, I wondered what your thoughts were on this, uh, on the idea of failure kind of as a mechanism of time. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, really. It's really interesting. I think I've, I feel I've got loads to say about it, so I'll try not to uh, waffle on too much. But I think this idea of a binary kind of scale of success on one end and failure on another, it doesn't really capture the kind of the messiness of people's lives and recovery journeys. But we seem to have kind of created from a a commissioning perspective and this kind of outcomes driven perspective that idea that we can kind of have a success or a failure which doesn't really feel very reflective I think and doesn't value the really kind of small incremental changes that happen in people's lives and on people's individual journeys so I really like that idea of failure as a mechanism of time. Like to me, it sounds really hopeful that it's not about success or failure at a certain point. It's not a kind of predetermined timescale. It's about that individual's journey and there will be successes and failures along the way, but we're kind of moving forward together. So yeah, that, that's kind of what came to mind, I think. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. And that actually kind of reminds me now of those kind of like when you said about the small incremental changes that happen in an individual's life. I remember in one of my previous roles, there was someone that I was supporting and we needed to get him registered at a doctor. And because of previous kind of experiences in the health system, he wasn't keen on doing that. And it actually took about six months in order for us to get him registered with a GP. And nothing really else happened 
um, you know, in terms of like meeting a KPI. And, you know, in six months time, we got him registered for a doctor. But actually, that was a huge moment for that individual to have the courage to go in and, you know, have some blood tests and things like that. And that was an amazing, amazing outcome for him and a, a real success as well. And I think often kind of when you look at like KPIs and things like that, that isn't seen as like, oh yeah, great success. But in that person's life, that was a real monumental change. So yeah, no, really, really interesting about that. And it definitely gives you a bit of hope, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, it's not just uh, so binary, like success and failure, it's, it's a journey. Yeah, Vicky. Yeah, it's just making me think about, I think we have struggled a little bit as a sector to capture some of those softer outcomes, or they're not even necessarily softer for that person, but the ones that aren't as kind of clear cut. And um, we've tried, I think lots and lots of different systems have been put in place and lots of different measuring tools have been tried, but it still remained really difficult to capture how big a success it is for that one individual that you mentioned to walk into that appointment and how to kind of demonstrate that so that we can do the work that we need to do with with people who who you know will struggle to take some of those steps and it still be meaningful and still be valued yeah absolutely yeah Alex do you want to say something yeah I was just I was thinking about kind of whose failure it is as well do you know when we talk about that failure is it seen as kind of the failure of the individual the failure of the worker, the failure of the the service or the organisation and like where that responsibility for failure and success lies. And I think that we do need to think much more about the individual, like it's not so much about us or us proving that we're a great service and we're achieving or not achieving. It's actually what matters to that person and how we really value that from yeah commissioning perspective from you know from all perspectives yeah absolutely yeah I was going to just say exactly and I think I've worked a lot on strengths-based practice and and one of the the key parts of that is is allowing people to sort of make their own decisions to foster independence and capability and part of that involves you know being okay with the fact that people will make mistakes will take decisions that someone else might see as risky or that or might not work out for them and genuinely might not end up being the thing that they intended to do will get the outcome that they wanted but allowing people to take their own steps and be on their own journey and make mistakes just the same way that the rest of us do all the time and that being okay so and that feeds into that whole discussion doesn't it of what is a success and what is a failure and and how that's part of a journey yeah absolutely thanks vicky i think it's also really interesting to think about failure in relation to how we value ourselves so in episode one nick talks about the links between not being able to help and therefore feeling quite valueless um lauren i didn't know if you had any thoughts on this yeah thanks joe um i think what i really took from this is that sense of failure in ourselves and how we transfer that into um how we think about ourselves i think we get into this work often because we want to want to help because we see value in relationships and supporting people and building sort of a better world for others um, and and ourselves. Um, And not necessarily how it relates to, say, an individual we're working with not reaching goals, but how we feel failure because we're not seeing the change in the systems that we want as quick as we want. And that being really hard 
I think what it also made me think of is this of quote by Brené Brown about um, perfectionism um, and how we are often sort of in the mindset of if I if I do these perfect things, if I achieve these perfect things, if I work perfectly, if I live perfectly, I can minimise any sort of shame, blame or judgment I feel. And I think we often hold that feeling when we are going into into work, into our daily lives, into working with individuals. But, and I think that's impossible. Um, we can't be perfect all the time. And I think we can very quickly get into places of shame in this line of work. And that really affects how we think about ourselves and our value ourselves. And that's what we really need to reflect on, what our own feelings of shame are. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you, Lauren. In terms of sort of us being able to achieve, Vicky, I know that you've you've worked in the homelessness sector for many years. So it'd be interesting to get your perspective on if you feel things have changed in terms of actually being able to achieve kind of positive outcomes for individuals. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Of course, that makes me feel very old. But um, but yes, um, I have been around quite quite a while, about twenty five years, and it's definitely true that um, in terms of the sort of out the system, the housing system, I do think things have got tougher. Um, and that um, makes me reflect on what you said earlier about whether or not we're we're blaming ourselves or whether this is more about systems and things that are beyond our control. And it's definitely true that around sort of 2000, when I was first working with both young people experiencing homelessness, as well as um, some women who'd experienced some quite extreme complex trauma, um, there were far more housing options. And it's definitely true that there were hostel spaces available, but it was also true that within a few years, Max, someone could expect to be in a permanent property, a housing association or a, or a council property. And that was in London. And that is just massively not the case anymore. So whilst things were incredibly tough, and I'm not forgetting how hard the job was even back then, there was always this sense of, of potential and hope. And when I went back to that, that a similar role about 10 years later, I was quite shocked to find how much tougher it was. And, and that must take its toll on, on, on workers, knowing that they're not able to provide the kind of housing options that people would ideally want. And that's, that's really difficult and, and beyond an individual worker's control. Yeah, absolutely. So Aviv, it would be actually uh, great to hear from you in terms of what you feel causes these feelings of failure that leads to burnout because I know we've just kind of touched on it could be personal reasons it could be structural reasons so it could be good to hear from you I think that's a really interesting question and um I have worked in in frontline services for 11 years um or I did before I came to homeless link and I was really clear that the reasons why people burn out, um, you know, when I was a frontline worker, when I was a team leader, is because people people's roles were under-resourced, um, people's services were under-resourced, um, KPIs that we had were, you know, really difficult to achieve with the level of resourcing they had, you know, staffing was difficult, it was underpaid. I had a, I could have given you a whole, you know, list, like I just did, um, of structural reasons um, why people burn out. And I think what's interesting and it's really come through in across all of the podcasts is there are structural issues, but also there we have to think about the personal reasons why we do the, jo the job that we do and what that leads to in terms of maybe, you know, wanting to over deliver, want to, to, to work more quickly um, than, than we actually can with, with certain people, um, recognising that, 
you know, working to KPIs and not necessarily creating improvement in people's lives. Uh, and just thinking about the, our own conscious and unconscious needs when it comes to the job that we do. So maybe we're just really, we really want to help, you know, our clients. So we, um, we stay a bit longer, we might give up our breaks. We might not, um, you know, make time for, you know, for, for reflective practice and for team meetings, because there's just always so much to do. And what this whole series has really kind of brought home to me is that the structural and the personal causes of, of burnout um, in terms of overworking in an overworked structure um, are really important to reflect on. Um, and the, I guess, our own reasons um, for why we do the work that we do and what that then motivates us or how that motivates us to work. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting in terms of kind of those personal causes of that feelings of failure and then the kind of feeling burnt out. I found episode three um, with Ben Neal really interesting about how often those that go into the homelessness sector do so due to a sense of wanting to help. So it's very values driven. And so because there's an aspect of the work which is very personal, people can easily get caught up in it's my responsibility. So a failure of a service or someone accessing services becomes quite a personal failure. Um, And in the episode, Ben talks about values driven work leading to a strong super ego voice. For example, you're not working hard enough. And then this leads to overworking, longer hours, breaking boundaries. And if the whole team is doing this and you're not, you end up standing out and you feel really guilty. So I think it's really important that managers model this boundary type behavior and also model the importance of self-compassion to avoid workers constantly feeling as though they're failing or not doing enough. Um, So Alex, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on this in terms of the need for managers to to be open about how they're feeling too. Yeah, I think, um, you know, reflecting sort of on, say, you know, the last 10 years in the sector, it feels like we have made huge progress in the value we now place on reflective practice and psychological safety and environments. Um, And that has been, I think, revolutionary for the sector in, in the support that's now available. There are still, you know, improvements that we can make and it can be you know more widespread and more consistent but I think what strikes me is that a lot of that practice does still sit very much at the front line and I think we do forget that the you know the the managers that are you know in that middle management position of of front line they are then being managed by someone who's you know slightly higher up in the organization and it goes right the way through you know through all uh levels of hierarchy in the organization about how everybody is being managed so if this kind of this culture of reflection and and psychologically informed working only exists in the front line then it becomes uh, a very difficult thing because it's almost like an extra task for frontline teams to have to take on. It's another meeting that they've got to go to in an already busy job. And it's it's not seen as something that's just part of the work and part of the, the organisation. So I think both kind of managers um, being able to role model valuing those spaces, 
but also those managers being supported as well and their managers being supported like it has to go through every level of the organization it has to be part of the culture for it to be truly um embedded and not be seen as this kind of like extra thing that we have to do rather than integral to the work and integral to being able to do the work well for people i think when i was listening to the episode i was really reflecting on kind of this idea of personal and professional and if in our personal lives we're the kind of person that says i'm fine i don't need help um i will just you know sort it out and and fix it then why would we then come to work and be the kind of person that says i'm not fine i need help i really want to talk about this difficult thing um so i think when we're asking people to be involved in this we really need to think carefully about kind of you know the the recruitment and the the values that people have that are going to help them to be able to engage with that kind of work um and it's it's just as valuable and just as needed as as all the other skills of kind of frontline workers and managers and senior managers see so yeah, i think it's not just about managers role modeling i think it's about organizational culture and and really having a shift so that it it isn't a tokenistic thing that exists in the front line it's something that is just part of part of the work yeah absolutely Viv did you want to comment on that yeah it was just um a comment or a reflection um on the point that Alex made about um managers modeling and one of the best managers that I ever had in frontline services um said to me when you know I was just trying to do more and more and more and more because things need to be done um said you are paid by this organization to work 40 hours a week. That's what the organization can expect. And that's what you should deliver to the best of your abilities. Any more is entirely up to you, but you have to ask yourself why you're doing that or why it needs doing. And if it's a capacity issue, that's something that needs talking about, not something that needs to be sticking plastered. But it was just the really straightforward notion. This organization pays you to work for that many hours a week and that's what you're obliged to um to deliver and, and just think about why you might be doing more um and i think that was really important for me when when i was a team leader um that was a really important message that i tried to get over and where i've been a shift lead um for example where you know you've got 12 hour shifts where people have maybe got 90 minute breaks um and just there is always a reason why people can't in inverted commas take a 90 minute break but just trying to be really proactive and making sure that people are given those break times and that people are able to do their shift handover. Um, and so, yes, it's just having that modeled for me was very, um, by, by my manager was very important in, under, in, in me being able to then do it um, for my team when I um, manage teams. Yeah, absolutely. So important to have that person that models that behavior. Alex, are you wanting to comment? Yeah, I think they, this just reminded me of, of kind of thinking about my experiences as a manager before um, coming to Homeless Link. And yeah, I think my my experience was, you know, this idea of, of you know, really needing to support uh, frontline teams with, you know, it was a, a very busy, complex needs service. Um, and they were under a lot of pressure and it was a very, very difficult role. But as a manager, you've kind of got overall responsibility for 
all of the people that the service is supporting, as well as supporting the staff that you have who, you know, have got their own things going on and, you know, their personal lives and their the pressures of the work. And as a manager, you're kind of holding all of that. Um, and I think my my experience was that I I didn't feel as supported as I need, you know, I didn't get the, the level of support that I thought I needed to be able to function really well in that role. And there is this expectation that the more senior you are, the more you kind of just shoulder and you you kind of suck it up and you get on with it. And I think that's kind of really what I'm, I think that's where my feelings about this culture um, really come in. Because if, if the culture feels very different at the top of the organisation compared to the bottom, the, the middle management of that organisation is really getting squeezed on both sides. Um, and it's it's not possible then to really role model really effectively like that they've had um, because you're being asked to do more and more and, and work harder and that has to go somewhere. So yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's a challenge. I think a real challenge. Yeah, definitely, it definitely needs to be like you said, this whole culture shift from all levels of the organisation to really make a make a change. So I kind of wanted to go on to um, the importance of reflective practice and debriefing, uh, and making sure that these are like properly embedded into people's organisations, and that being from sort of from the top as well, um, not just middle managers. And in episode six, we spoke uh, about how a lot of individuals, including managers, feel like they can't expose their practice to colleagues as they fear they may judge it as being wrong. So it's really important that these spaces are created in a way to ensure everyone feels safe to share. Lauren, it'll be good to get your thoughts on this. Thanks. Yeah, I think what really what I was thinking about when I was listening to the series and also preparing for this episode is that what we're asking people to do in reflective spaces is really big. You know, we're asking people to show up and dig into things about their work that um, might make them feel anxious or scared or vulnerable. If we're thinking about debriefing, we're asking workers to think about something that is kind of the worst case scenario, the worst has happened. Um, And that's really hard work. That's a really big, big ask of people. So then I was thinking, you know, it's really important to take the time to think about how we can build reflective non-judgmental spaces and think about how we build these on both a sort of individual and group level. I think it's interesting thinking about how you embed this into culture for an organisation, because actually these groups need to be really live and really sort of dynamic um, as teams grow together, um, change, new workers come in, other workers leave, old workers leave. That's not a very nice way of saying it. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's a lot of, we're asking for a lot from people and therefore we need to put a lot in to keep everyone feeling safe. Um, And I think this is really important. And I was speaking to an organisation last year about their sort of journey in in trying to embed um, reflective therapeutic practice within their organisations. And they spoke about how hard it was and how much work it was for staff um, to come in and be that vulnerable. But also the importance of it, as it's exactly what we're asking um, people we work with to do not you know as explicitly necessarily um and yeah that really sort of struck me i think 
it's also really important to think about how within creating reflective spaces, how workers are affected by um, adversity and experiences of structural discrimination themselves. Um, so this might include experiences of racism or homophobia, transphobia, sexism, disabilism. And I think we need to think about how the choice of saying, you know, I'm going to expose myself, I'm going to be really vulnerable in these spaces, holds a certain level of privilege um, because actually it assumes a level of personal safety in the world, which um, not, not everyone has, not everyone experiences. And so if you're thinking about creating a safe space, all of these things need to sort of feed into that. And I think the kind of answer is a lot of work and a lot of time. Um, and that's okay. And that needs to be factored into sort of building a organisation. Yeah, absolutely. Vicky, did you want to say something on that? Yeah, um, it was just making me reflect what Lauren was saying about uh, what Emma Williams said, said about shift debriefing. Because um, one of the most positive organisations I worked in did a, a pre-brief every single morning and a debrief at the end of every single day. It was a day service that so did open and close. But um, and that was such a, a positive thing because what it meant was that the team were very, very bonded because everybody met really, really frequently. So that when it comes to go to those more intimate spaces where you're doing the more detailed reflective practice, people are already incredibly comfortable and safe with each other because it's a kind of daily, twice daily really practice of of speaking and sharing. Of course, I can't speak to everybody in that room and whether there were people who who did feel less safe because of, a, you know, being in a less privileged position. But overall, it always felt like a very bonded organisation. And I have to say, it's got pretty much the same staff 20 years later. So I feel like it's a very, it's got an incredible staff retention as well. And, and I always remember that that organisation as a as a really a positive place to work as well as a result. Yeah, I thought that shift reflection model was a brilliant a brilliant tool. I'm hoping that people that listen to it that don't use that might try that out in their organisations. I thought it was a really fantastic way of kind of bringing more positivity to what can be quite a very stressful job as well. In thinking about kind of episode six again, so Neil speaks about how we are responsible kind of as workers for working with clarity and actually reflective practice can be a tool to be able to do this. Viv, it would be interesting to get your thoughts on this, on how, as frontline workers, we have that responsibility to reflect on how we work. Um, I think it's really important. And I think it was Alex who said that the that we're working in a sector that more and more prizes or values reflective practice. And I think that... In my experience, sometimes, especially in very um, high pressure, high stress, high energy um, environments um, where, you know, there might be incidents on, on a regular basis that, you know, are very emotionally charged. If you don't have this practice of reflection, whether, you know, I thought the, um, like you said, um, when Dr. Williamson, Williamson talked about the end of shift reflection, um, I thought that sounded brilliant, um, but, you know, something like that or a reflective practice or, you know, something that's in place to debrief um, when there are, you know, greater or, you know, kind of like more or less um, kind of like emotionally charged um, things happen. If you don't have that, then those emotions are still there um, and the 
the risk is that they end up festering in corners. They end up kind of, um, you know, taking up headspace that you don't have to give or that you shouldn't need to give. Or, you know, I've worked in um, in teams where perhaps there might have been little cliques that form because, you know, um, some people might think an incident should have been handled like this. Some Some people think that somebody else should have behaved like that. And where you have, I think, um, where Lauren mentioned, you know, this 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 open space where um, people should feel safe to be vulnerable, um, and you know, the the team that uh, that Vicky mentioned as well, the service where, um, you know, they have this amazing staff retention. We have a responsibility to reflect on our work because it improves the the service for the client and or you know for the people that we're working with for the um, whether it's somebody. Um, you know, in a frontline service or, you know, in a more residential service. And so reflecting on the ways that we responded and reacted can then, you know, we can build on that and improve the work that we do. Uh, but also reflecting, um, I think, improves team dynamics. It it means that we've got a space to share. We've got a space to to unburden ourselves. We, we can have people reflect back to us that they might have done something um, very similar. Um, they might have done something different that we can learn from. And yeah, I think in terms of responsibility, um, it is, it's not a nice to have. It's not something that we can kind of, you know, just shoehorn in as and when we, you know, we don't have meetings and, you know, case callovers and any of the kind of like the myriad things um, that there is never enough time to do, um, especially, you know, in a frontline service. It's something that's essential to the development of the service, the development of the, the worker, um, you know, and... Um, you know, thinking about developing how we, we help people. So what I took away from, you know, especially from that episode um, is, and also the, the um, episode five with Dr. Williamson, is there are lots of different ways of doing it, but it's something that does definitely need to be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of ties into episode four, which looked at the impact of vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress and burnout on frontline staff, because, you know, unfortunately a lot of individuals will be you know impacted by the work that they do and that need to kind of reflect and open up is so so important in this work i also thought in episode four the part about the expectation that as frontline workers we just need to be more resilient really resonated with me and how there is still a little bit of a stigma related to struggling um vicky it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on this in terms of your experience of uh, of being an outreach worker yeah, well, um, thanks, Joe. Yeah, I was an outreach worker for a number of years in, in quite a tough area and working with a group of mostly women who had experienced, as I said earlier, complex trauma, were still experiencing huge trauma. And, you know, we sort of carried on. We we bumbled along. We did our, our role. We enjoyed it. And I think it was only when we really had a loss and when someone we were working alongside died or there was a really, really serious incident that it would suddenly just hit us like a ton of bricks. Just the, the difficulty, the the toughness of the world that, that we were working in and that, more importantly, people were living in. Um, and it really used to just stun us, I think, as a as a small team. And there wasn't any formal support. It was a nice organisation, but um, really we just sort of, dealt with it and carried on and it yeah it really it just shows how much you you sort of push under the carpet and then things come up which make that suddenly impossible to do again yeah absolutely be interesting to hear from anyone else about how they found that episode uh, of vicarious trauma and whether anything resonated from them kind of in terms of previous roles they'd been in 
I think that the thing that really stuck out for me is basically the same as what Vicky's just said, is that uh, it's reflecting on the impact of frontline services and working in frontline services is becoming um, more and more prevalent. But 10 years ago, if something happened, there was an incident, a major incident, it was basically like, are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? Okay, fine. Drawn a line under. And it was very much about, and it is, I think, you know, in, um, in some places about, well, if you're tough enough and, you know, you just kind of like, okay, get on with it. And um, it's just part of the job. And if you can't cope with it, then should you be doing the job? When actually it is part of the job, but there are things that we can do to help people um, deal with this vicarious trauma. So the trauma that comes from dealing with trauma. And, um, And I think that's a really positive move within the sector and something that I think should only be encouraged and we should be encouraged away from this. I think it was um, Ben Neal in his episode talked about um, frontline workers and especially, you know, outreach work as a sense of kind of slight like lawlessness or a law unto themselves. I can't remember exactly the term that he used, but yeah, I mean, I felt that, you know, being out on shift or, you know, I've been, you know, on a um, a frontline shift on on, on a Saturday or a Sunday or, you know, Christmas Day or whatever. And it does feel very disconnected from, you know, the wider organisation. There you are out by yourself kind of doing what you do. And it, I, th- I think that the fact that reflecting on how dealing with things when you are in those uh, those situations um, is coming more to the fore, I think will maybe help kind of slightly inter- make people feel more integrated um, into the teams they work in or into the organisations they work for. And that, again, um, can only, ha- I think, have a positive impact on um, on the way that we can we help the people that we help. Yeah, thank you, Viv. Alex, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think probably just thinking about those points on resilience and, and vicarious trauma and the, the impact on people who come into the sector with their own lived experience of um, either homelessness or substance use, mental health, you know, a a range of things and the kind of expectations, I think, that are put on to just, you know, be able to manage the role and conform with all of the policies and procedures and boundaries and and ways of work and that we we expect. and then when things go wrong, being being a bit surprised, <laughs> which which does, you know, it, it it's a serious point really because I, I feel like we are, you know, we're we're missing kind of a layer of support for people in uh, thinking about, you know, I, I don't know if this is really kind of a, a term that we use very much, but thinking about trauma informed management and and how we're delivering kind of management support with a, a trauma informed kind of hat on and thinking that, you know, yes, the people that we're supporting have, have likely experienced trauma, but actually the, the people that are drawn into this work are drawn into it for a reason. And and some of that possibly does come from their own experiences of trauma um, and, and how we we miss that sometimes, I think, and and need to maybe shift a little bit about about how we deliver some of that management support. 
um it it frustrates me a little bit i think when we um we don't have a a good positive kind of reflective culture and then we put all of that onus of responsibility for people's resilience on the individual you know you're you're kind of not taking care of your own well-being you know go have a a nice bath or a, a long walk and and really you know the conditions that someone are working in are are so you know difficult and and so re-traumatizing that you know that stuff is is just kind of very tokenistic and i think it can create some real kind of tensions really but with people not having their needs met and and the support not being robust enough so yeah i think it's there's there's something there that I feel quite strongly about having a more kind of trauma-informed approach to support and management within teams. Yeah, such good points. Thank you, Alex. Lauren, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think um, really just to build on what Viv was saying, one of the things that really resonated with me in the whole series is, I, I can't remember who said it, but the seductiveness of that kind of work hard, play hard, get the job done attitude. And I think this can be particularly... Um, true when you've just sort of entered this frontline sector in, in whatever role and I think it's really hard to break and I think it's really encouraged maybe inadvertently within the voluntary sector and it's it's a kind of myth that's sort of held even where you're sort of looking at reflective spaces even if you're recognizing vicarious trauma um, I know I've worked in organizations where there's been great structures around frontline workers I think Alex raises a good point it's not around managers however the the kind of we work we get the job done we 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 go as far as we can um attitude still persists yeah that's really what I was reflecting on (laughs) thanks Lauren I just wanted to end our discussion about uh episode two with Andy Fee on how to use mindfulness to unpack stress. So one of my favourite quotes from the series um, was in this episode, and it was this, uh, between stimulus and response, there is space. In that space lies our freedom to choose, and in our choices may lie our growth and happiness. I just found this quote really powerful, and it really highlighted the importance of kind of stepping back and reflecting so that we can see our experiences kind of more generally. It'd be interesting to see how you found this episode on mindfulness. And I thought it was excellent. Um, I thought, you know, what Andy said about mindfulness and explaining kind of how it works, but also the exercises um, that you did. um, I I was incredibly chilled out by the end of the episode. And I mean, I will say that, you know, previously, I I think that it kind of reflects what I said um, towards the top of the, the pod, that I love mindfulness but have tended to think that encouraging people towards mindfulness is an abdication of solving the structural problems so you know um, people are overworked they they're under resourced but if you try a bit of mindfulness that'll do you some good and i think that one of the things that has really come out of um that podcast and his podcast um was just how beneficial mindfulness can be just in the moment as well as kind of overall Um, And using those really kind of um, quite straightforward tools and practices that Andy talked about. So, yes, structurally, things need to change and things need to be better resourced. But I am a lot less cynical, I will say, of the place of mindfulness and how that can really help, especially just in the moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Viv. Alex, did you want to comment? Yeah, likewise. Absolutely loved the episode. Personally, felt like I got a lot from it and reminded me, I think, of of sort of mindfulness practices that, you know, if you don't build it in, it, it is it is easy to kind of forget to to stop and to to pause and to breathe. And when I was when I was doing kind of more frontline work, we had kind of a, a weekly sort of case management meeting and we used to try and start that case management meeting with 10 minutes of mindfulness you know Monday morning just a space to to try and yeah reset and start well uh, and that that did work really well and it, it did build the practice in I think as a, a sort of you know a weekly expectation that that's what we do and that's the routine but I also think it it wasn't for everybody. Um, and I think my my reflection is, you know, trying to to find the right ways of doing these things for everybody in a, you know, a big diverse team is is tricky. You know, particularly uh, you know, people maybe with neurodiversity, mindfulness is is something that, that is quite tricky to engage with and maybe doesn't have a, a very positive impact for them. So I think it was when in one of the episodes when we're talking about whether, you know, reflective practice should be mandatory or, you know, engaging with this mindfulness should be mandatory. How we get that balance right, I think, to to build it in, but to also uh, make it, you know, a, a useful thing for, for everybody. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Alex. I think that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much, Alex, Viv, Lauren and Vicky for chatting with me today. It's been really great to hear what stood out for you across the series. And that's it for this series of the Going Beyond podcast. Um, but it's absolutely not the end. So if you have any comments on the series or any suggestions for topics for future series, please do pop me an email. It's joanna.turner at homelesslink.org.uk. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening. To keep up to date with the latest goings on at Homeless Link, please follow us on Twitter at Homeless Link. If you're interested in training and development opportunities for yourself, your team, or your organisation, get in touch by emailing training at homelesslink.org.uk. We have a range of courses that help staff and organisations develop the skills needed to tackle current issues and improve services.